Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing. Thankful to be in the house of the Lord, aren't you? Praise God, praise God. If you'll join me this morning in the book of John, chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 9 through 11. John 12, 9 through 11. While you're finding that, I just want to say how, how great it is, how thankful I am to see my grandmother in service this morning for the first time in a, a long time. Thankful for that. What a, what a refreshing that was to see her getting out of the car this morning. Praise God. John chapter 12 Verses 9 through 11, the Bible says, Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, speaking of Jesus. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. We've spent our time this month talking about making room for the resurrection, making room for the Lord in our lives. And this morning, I just want to speak to you for a few moments about the testimony, the testimony. Can you remember a time perhaps in your life or some experience that you had that was so great that you just couldn't wait to tell people about it? something that you maybe encountered, some product maybe that you, that you encountered that was something so great, something you felt so, so neat that you just couldn't wait to share that with someone else. I'm certain that most of us here in this room this morning have heard the term word of mouth advertising. Businesses will admit that this is the greatest form of marketing. It's certainly not a new concept. It is, in fact, probably one of the oldest forms of advertising there is. However, what's interesting is it's more relevant today than perhaps it ever has been. For instance, it's exponentially more important for word-of-mouth advertising or word-of-mouth marketing in the world of product sales today. You see, in times past, one would only have direct effect on those in their immediate face-to-face vicinity. This form of marketing was limited to the number of places an individual went, and it was limited to the number of physical or personal interactions that they had. Yet, now in today's world with the internet, word-of-mouth advertising is increasingly more and more relied upon. With every tweet, with every share, with every quote-unquote like, Products can be mass advertised 
by the consumer to other consumers. And here's the reason why this is so important in the world of marketing today. Where word of mouth marketing or where word of mouth advertising really stands out is its high level of trust. According to a recent study, upwards of 90% of consumers trust word of mouth marketing or referral above all other forms of advertising. Because another human being being able to experience a particular product or service and their decision to share that, whether good or bad, has a profound effect on others. I don't know about you, but when I'm shopping for something, when I'm perusing through Amazon, I'm going to the reviews. I don't care what the company has to say about their product. Of course, it's the best that's ever been made. It's going to solve all your problems. All the pictures look great. They're in the right lighting. They're in the right setting. But I want to scroll on down. I want to see what other people have to say about that. I want to see their pictures of that product and what it looked like when they got it. I want to know what their experience was. And so in summary, in summation, good reviews produce good results. Customer testimonials really do work. A shared experience will affect those that that experience is shared with. And spiritually speaking this morning, this is what we are called to do. To do. Though we, as a people, have a much more important message to convey. We have a much more urgent message to proclaim. And can I tell you this morning without hesitation, it is a message that is worth sharing. Four whole days. Four days. That's how long Lazarus laid in the grave. Four days is how long he lay breathless. That's how long he laid without beating heart or functioning kidneys. That's how long he laid with no brain waves to record or blood pumping through his veins. Lazarus laid lifeless for four days. It's almost, if you think about it, unbelievable that a man could lay dead for four whole days and live to tell about it. Science would argue that it's a rare event, if not impossible, surrounded by improbable causes that said that it's probably not going to happen. If you die, you're dead. Few have been without oxygen. Few have been without brain waves and receptors firing as their synapses just lay dormant in their head for a few minutes and lived, much less for more than 24 hours or more. But Lazarus lay dead for four whole days. It's not a common occurrence. It's certainly not common in our day because the death of, our finality of death is central and final, especially in a prolonged state. The longer someone lays without organ function, the likelihood of resuscitation and even normal function after that, it lives in the realm of impossibility. But Lazarus stood as living proof. Imagine what it would have been like to walk down the street, maybe down his street off the sidewalk and see him around in his yard working. Imagine what it would have been like to walk 
down the road into a store somewhere and see him shopping and doing his regular, normal, everyday business, just walking around as if nothing had ever happened. A man who was known to have died after an apparent terminal illness. He was dead for the better part of a week, and now he's walking around seemingly like nothing has ever happened. How exciting would that be? It was exciting enough then that news began to spread because of the testimony of those who had had first-hand accounts of what happened. Because they began to share their experience and because they began to share their story, many people believed on Jesus and his teaching. It is no doubt that Mary, Lazarus' sister, told that story and recounted its, its points with, without fail about what had happened to Lazarus, her brother. This was no small thing. I'll just reiterate, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Let that sink in. I'm saying this for a reason this morning. Four whole days, and Jesus called him out of the grave. The viewing was over. The last amen had been proclaimed and pronounced as the funeral procession ended. Lazarus was placed in his final burying place and the page was turned. A new chapter had begun without Lazarus in it. But Jesus showed up on the scene. Jesus entered in to the story and he called him by name and he called and commanded him to come out of the grave and he did. What had been final now had a new future. What was dead would live again and it was Mary and Lazarus and everyone that was connected to it that told that story and many, the Bible says, believed on Jesus. Now something we must understand here this morning, many believed, many believed, but not because Mary could dissect all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Many believed on Jesus and his teachings, not because she was able to point out every psalm that pointed and contained a foretelling of a future Messiah. She may not have been able to sit down and reason among the biblically educated and the elite about the law and the prophets, but what she could do without fail and without hesitation, without having to recall much of her memory, is that she could talk about the undeniable and the unrefutable evidence of what God had done in their family. The fact of the matter was this. Lazarus died. He was dead. But now he is alive again the proof was standing right in front of them and there was nothing that they could say against it. And they believed because they could not deny the proof. And so now, if that were the end of the story, everything would be fine. But unfortunately, it's not. Not all would be well with everyone. One would think that if something like this happened, the whole town, if not the whole world, would be excited about what happened, but not everyone was joyful. Not everyone had joy in their heart about what was happening both to Lazarus and their family and even the fame that it brought to Jesus. In fact, some were downright angry and furious at the fame that it had brought to Jesus and his teaching. 
What's more, some of these new believers began to take their accounts and even their questions to the Pharisees. We already know that the Pharisees had already written his, his death warrant. The, the Pharisees had already made up in their mind with their doubts and their dissertations. They had formed their own opinions of Jesus. They had already harshly criticized him for the seeming abandonment of the Mosaic law. But what they did not understand was that he was not an abandonment to the law, but he was a fulfillment to that law. And so it completely turned their world upside down. It completely destructed, and it completely disrupted their world. And it, 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 it promised to upend their social and their political and their economic power that they held in the nation. Even they had councils, and they talked about this. They said, if this keeps going on, the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to just take us out of our place, and they're going to take over. We've got something good going on right now, and we don't want to mess up the apple cart. And so their motives were to eradicate the fame. And their motives were to, to, to dissect the teachings of Jesus. And their motives were many. And so these religious power brokers, they met with the high priest, Caiaphas, and they began to plot how they would kill Jesus. They cloaked it in religious fervor. But their goal was murder. By all outward appearance, it could look like their focus was the preservation of tradition. But their motive was one, and it was to silence Jesus and anyone who had connection to him. Now, I'm going somewhere. Word began to spread, and it reached to the ears of Jesus himself. In fact, many accounts reflect that he and his disciples didn't walk so openly in the capital city as they once did. And so this would be the third Passover that John mentions in his work where we are this morning. After raising Lazarus back to life, he withdrew to a town a dozen miles north of Jerusalem. And so now the question is on everyone's lips, with a death warrant, with a warrant for his arrest, would Jesus come to the Passover? Would he show up? I'll go ahead and just give you the spoiler. He would show up. He would show up. Because nothing will keep him back from his purpose. Heading south, skirting the wilderness side of the hill country, Jesus barely bypasses Jerusalem to revisit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in nearby Bethany. The preceding verses of John 12, where we just read this morning, was the dinner that we have been talking so much about, wherein Mary poured the spikenard over his feet and wiped them with her hair. Now, News of Jesus' presence in Bethany begins to spread fast. But what is interesting is that crowds sweep in to see both him and Lazarus. Here we see the ultimate embodiment. The embodiment of evidence certifying Jesus' claims about himself as the re-enlivened Lazarus attracts believers in Jesus. This is the culmination. This is the complete picture of what it is supposed to be like. It is the ultimate embodiment. They were attracted to Lazarus because of the testimony that he could share. Even people that might not have come to see Jesus himself were coming to hear the one who could relate the first person account of what Jesus had done 
in his life. Now is here where the Jewish leaders see that they will also have to take Lazarus out too. It's here that now they understand what is causing all of this. What is making all of this take place? What is causing all of the masses to go for him and toward him? It's here where they understand where all of that is coming from. And they understand that now they have to kill Lazarus to snuff out the people's growing enthusiasm for Jesus. It's here that these religious pious people needed to not only stop the working of miracles, but they needed to stop the telling of the miracle. They needed to stop and silence and staunch the testimony of those who had been impacted by their own personal experience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because they knew that if the story was told, they knew that it would upset the status quo. They understood, hear me now, that the testimony was the key. They understood that if the testimony was told, it would spread like a fire. In fact, it would be the key that would turn the masses toward the master. It was the testimony of those who had been impacted by the power of Jesus Christ himself that would turn the masses toward the master. And can I tell you this this morning, that has not changed. It was then and it is the same even now. It will be what turns the masses toward the master. It necessarily won't be the miracle, but it will absolutely be the terror, telling of the miracle. Hear me now. Hear me now. There is little doubt that the goal of the enemy is to silence and to suppress the voice of the testimony. And I'm not going to give him any more credit than he's worth here this morning, which is very little. But I'm going to tell you something. He's not ignorant. He's not dumb. Can I use this word? He's not stupid. A lot of people think he is. He's not. He's arrogant. He's arrogant and he is prideful, but he is not ignorant and he is not illiterate. Revelation 12 and 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they, somebody say they. The accused, somebody say, that's me, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And hear me, and they love not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He can read. He knows the end. He knows because it's already been written and it's already been settled. He's going into a bottomless pit for eternity and there's nothing that he can do about it. But he can disrupt it. The blood has been shed. That's already done. 
If you have been baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you have been filled with the power of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking with other tongues, that's already done. That's already finished. But if he can silence your voice, if he can take your testimony out of your mouth, then he can win in your life. He knows. He knows that it's your testimony that will be what will impact those around you because of what God has done in your life. Outside of prior knowledge, outside of any prior experience whatsoever, a very select few of people will be curious enough to seek Jesus on their own. But there are scores of people who need someone to lead them. There are scores of people who need someone to point them in the right direction. There is no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt. It just goes without saying that humanity is hurting. It, it goes without saying that humanity is lost and dying. It goes without saying that spiritual hunger exists and abounds in this day and age, possibly more than it ever has in our day. Just look around. Just look around. The endless pursuit of money and fame. The, over, the overwhelming need for acceptance, no matter where it comes from, seeking love in the wrong places and in the wrong things and in the wrong people. The empty bottomless pit of substance abuse. All of this is a true picture that humanity is hungry for something spiritual and fulfilling in their life. But the reality of it is, is that by the thousands, people are actually seeking after those other things and they fail to see that the only thing that will fulfill their lives is the power of Jesus Christ himself. And so I tell you this morning, they need somebody to lead them. They need someone to point them to the source they need someone to take them by the hand and show them the way they may not seek him on their own but what they will do is they will entertain the personal testimony of someone that they know and trust and I'll even go one step further here this morning I believe that people are so hungry that they will entertain the humble and sincere testimony of a stranger someone that they might not be know or familiar with Romans 10 and 14. I got kind of mad at you last weekend when you brought this up. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Hear me this morning. You may not be a theologian. You may not have all of this just nailed down just right. You may not be able to at 2 o'clock in the morning awaken out of a sleep and be able to give a dissertation on Paul's discussion of the third heaven. You may not even be able to recite the 23rd Psalm, but what you can do is you can stand flat-footed in front of someone and you can tell your story and what Jesus has done in your life. 
There may be some that will argue doctrine with you. There may be some that will stand so rooted in tradition and opposed to change from their religious authority in their own lives. They may wish to argue with you about your theology, but what they cannot argue against is the irrefutable evidence of God's power working in your life. You can't argue with that. No one can contend with you on your own account of what Jesus has accomplished in your life and in your family. You've come way too late this morning to tell me that the power of God isn't real. You've come way too late this morning to tell me that it is of no effect. There may be some that can stand with me and contend with me about certain theological points because I certainly don't know it all. But what they can't contend with, what they cannot argue with me is, what I know about what I know about what I know. And I know that for me, in 2006, I walked into this building. I walked into this building ashamed. I walked into this building bound. I walked into this building with sin abounding in my life. But God walked in. Jesus showed up and changed my life. I walked in that way that morning, but I walked out of here different. I walked in tattered and torn, but I walked out with restoration power working in my life, and it has not ended until this moment. So you cannot argue with my experience because it's my experience. You can't argue with experience from a man who has been changed from the inside out. Just ask the ex-blind man in John chapter 9. The Bible says that he was blind from birth, but Jesus entered his life. Jesus spit on the ground. Jesus pressed the mud in his eyes and commanded him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he did, he instantly received his sight, that miracle, it was made known too. And it began to spread as it made its way to the ears of those leaders in that day, those pious men who stood with their with their looks, their sideways glances, and they summoned this now-seeing man before them, and they demanded to know what had happened to him. Hear me, their goal was to intimidate him. Their goal was to make him afraid. Their goal was to suppress his testimony but they got more than what they bargained for. The Bible says in John chapter 9 and 24, then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not, but one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. He was saying, you can argue with me all you want to, but what he did, I don't know what he did. I don't know what he did was right or whether it's wrong. All I know is that yesterday I couldn't see my hand in front of my face and now I can see clearly through these two eyes. Notice, notice, he didn't try to defend the morality of Jesus. He didn't attempt to explain in a theological dissertation about Jesus. He simply told what Jesus did for him. 
Jesus doesn't need defending. Jesus, like the old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. No, not the proof of the pudding is in the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Because his value is not proved by theory. His value is proven by results and practical experience. It's been said many times, but I feel like saying it one more time. A man with experience is never at the mercy of a man with a mere argument. And so if you've got an experience this morning, I'm telling you to stand. I'm telling you to shout it from the mountaintops. You ought to give it to everybody that'll take it. You ought to say it to anybody that'll listen. God has changed my life and I've never been the same. I've never been the same and I'm never going back. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord and magnify him. I love you, Jesus. So resurrection power is intended to flow through. We're not the stop. We're designed to be a conduit. We're designed to be a flow through. And hear me this morning, I feel like saying this again. If we're going to be that conduit, we've got to put intimidation behind us. I'm tired of thinking what somebody else are wondering or worrying about someone else, what they might think or what they might do or what they might say. I walked in here, I'll say it again, in the year of 2006 with nothing in my mind but sin and shame and addiction. And I knelt at this altar and, and when I got up, I was a new man. Not everything was perfect, but God began a restoration in my life that has never ended. And so I'm going to tell it to whoever will listen. Lazarus and Mary, those that were in direct contact of Jesus and his transforming power, told their story to whoever listened. And so if we are to be the same, we must tell our experience of what he has done in our lives. We need to be prepared we need to be prepared to do so. We need to be prepared to do that whenever, wherever, and to whoever. And so effectively sharing our testimony involves three aspects. A simple formula to remember. Before, how, and since. What was your life before you were saved? Think about this in advance. Ask yourself these questions. What about your life before Jesus will relate most to unbelievers in your circles of influence? What did you trust in? What drove your life for significance? What gave you happiness? Or what did you seek after for happiness? And how did those things disappoint you over time? Secondly, how were you saved? How and when did you first hear about the New Testament plan of salvation? How did you first respond? If it was negatively, what caused you to become more open to the gospel? What were the final mental hurdles that you had to overcome in obeying his word? What was the experience like when you were born again of water and of spirit? And lastly, what has your life been like 
since God has entered your life? How is your life different now? What has changed in your thinking, your attitude, or your outlook on life? What is your motivation in life now? What is more important to you now? And what has become less important to you? How do you feel differently now with challenges? And how do you deal with disappointments in life now since God has come into your life? There's a reason. There's a reason why we need to be so prepared all around us are those who were just like we were. All around us, there are those that were just like we were. Dead. Dead in trespasses. And dead in sin. They are bound by addiction. They are imprisoned in emotional, psychological, and even physical prisons of shame, guilt, and despair. I don't care what this world paints. You can look on Instagram all you want to. Those are just snapshots of one moment in time. That does not tell the story of what these people are going through. In fact, that to me is a cry for help. I'll, I'll not meander there. So what they're waiting on, someone to tell them how, how to get out. Whether they consciously know it or not, there's a world full of people waiting on you and me, individuals just like us, to lead them out of where they are. Some of them we already know. Some of them, we can close our eyes right now and we can see their eyes. We can see their faces. His name was John Courier. Everyone knew him in that rural area. 1949, he had been convicted of murder, sentenced to life in prison. Living in that bleak reality, Courier was delighted when sometime later he was transferred from his grim cell and paroled to work on a farm near Nashville, Tennessee. Close-knit neighbors all were aware this notor notorious criminal was required to serve his parole, tending to the multiple difficult tasks around the farm. Nothing, nothing for him was easy. The bone-wearing labor lasted from daylight to dark, all for the benefit of someone else's bottom line. He had no choice. He was just there. Had he fled from that place, warrants would have been enacted immediately, and his sentence, no doubt, would have been more harsh than it was at the moment. Though he was outside of any physical walls or outside of any physical bars, his life continued to be in prison just as surely as if he had been in his cell. But in 1968, Courier's sentence was terminated in a letter bearing the good news that he was a free man was sent to him. Tragically, 
John never received nor saw the letter. In fact, no one ever told him anything about it. So he continued day after day, day after day with the back-breaking labor around that little farm without any knowledge that he was a free man and that he could leave any time he wanted to. So after 10 years, a state parole officer leaned in on this circumstance and learned of what had happened. He drove to that farm and shared the wonderful news with Mr. Courier. One can only imagine the, the emotions that flooded his heart upon hearing first that he was free and second that that freedom had been provided over a decade ago. And so George Sweeting, the man who wrote this and told of this story, related this in an account in his book, The No Guilt Guide to Witnessing. He posed this rhetorical question. Would it matter to you if someone sent you an important message, the most important in your life, and year after year, after year, the urgent message was never delivered. We, who have received the notice of our resurrected life in Christ Jesus, now have the profound privilege and the responsibility to do that. Our mission is to share willingly and generously the testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives for us with others who do not know such good news has been directed their way. So this is our urgent message this morning. This is my urgent message here today that you do not have to leave this house the same way that you walked in this house. And I'll just say this, if you're watching here today, that you do not have to get up from a posture of prayer the same way that you leaned into that posture of prayer because God loves you and God wants to see you whole. So it must be delivered this urgent message if we'll stand here this morning. The fact of the matter is is that we all have an experience to share. We all have a story to tell. And we can do it under the unction of the Holy Ghost through the liberating power of His Spirit. And we can allow God's resurrection power to flow through us and watch him do great things. Now we're done early, but I wonder if we can just take a few moments to lift our hands and to lift our voices to heaven and first thank him for what he's done in our lives through his power and then make him a promise 
that we're not going to stay silent and we're not going to stay stifled, but we're going to do what he called us to do. Lord, we love you today. God, we thank you for who you are. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, God. We give you glory, O oh Lord, for what you have done in our lives. God, we are nothing without you, Lord. We have nothing without you, Lord, and everything that we have is because of you. God, we are undeserving of your grace. God, we are, we are malrecipients, God, of your mercy. But God, we are thankful that you reached down into the mire and the muck and pulled us out of that, that miry clay, oh God. That you set our feet on something solid to stand and to walk and to live and to give you glory and to give you honor. And so now, Lord, God, with thanksgiving in our hearts, we ask you, Lord, to move on us and empower us and equip us, oh God, to do your will and to fulfill your purpose in this hour. Help us, Lord, to open our mouths without fear and without favor. God, and tell of the glorious and the miraculous power that you have bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, would you clap your hands one more time to the Lord and give him great praise because he is a great God. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386 935 2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.